How in the world do you enjoy Jesus when you have been a complete idiot? That's a question that we should know the answer to because our mission here at Grace is that we exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. So how in the world do you do that when you've been a complete idiot? How do you individually glorify and enjoy God when you've been an idiot and made a mess of your life? And then how do you ignite a passion in others to glorify and enjoy God when you've made a mess of your life, when you have chosen sin over Jesus? Listen, we can all be idiots sometimes. I know you probably didn't come to church this morning expecting to or wanting to be called an idiot, but let's be honest with one another this morning. When we ignore God's word, when we choose sin over Jesus, who does that? Idiots. That's who. Sinners are idiots because when they sin, they choose sin over Jesus. It's dumb to choose sin over Jesus. It's dumb to ignore God's word and try to live according to our own wisdom, right? I mean, that's dumb, right? Can we all agree on that this morning? It's dumb to ignore God's word and try to do life our way. It's dumb to sin. And since we all sin, and since we choose sin over Jesus all the time, what does that make us? Idiots. Listen, I know we don't like being called ignorant. I can tell by the looks on some of your faces, you don't like being called ignorant. We don't like being told that we are sinners. But if we can put aside our pride, and accept what God's word says about us, we really will start to experience freedom. God's word does not idealize us. God's word does not play dress up with us. God's word is honest, and it's real about our condition. And you have to love that about God. God is honest about us. And if we can learn to accept what he says about us in his word, then we'll actually start to get some traction in our life and begin seeing that we can walk in newness of life, as Paul says in Romans 6, 4. And so back to the question, how in the world do you enjoy Jesus when you totally mess up your life? How do you enjoy Jesus when you have been a complete idiot? Here's the answer, and it's our big idea today, and it is full of so much hope. Oh, how this big idea is full of so much hope, and here it is, and as I read it to you, I hope that hope tackles you to the ground this morning. You ready? Here we go. This is how we enjoy Jesus. We bring our failure to him and receive his grace. That's how you enjoy Jesus when you mess up your life. It's simple, but oh so significant. We bring our sin to him. We confess. We repent. 
When we take God at his word and we believe what he says, the Holy Spirit comes and he digs up sins that we have buried deep within. The sins that we have all let relax comfortably in our hearts. We bring them to Jesus. We bring our failures and we receive his grace. And then we really begin to enjoy him. Do you want to enjoy Jesus? I mean, do you really, really, really want to enjoy him? That's how you do it. And that's what we'll see in God's word today. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 12. As you turn there, remember that God is speaking to you today. God is speaking to you. Right where you are, and in whatever situation you find yourself today, God is speaking to you personally. And when we open up God's word, what's really happening is this. God is opening his heart to us. When we open the Bible to read it, God is actually opening up his heart to us. And so if you ever find yourselves not wanting to read God's word, and who hasn't been there before? If you find your, ever find yourself, eh, no, don't really want to read the Bible today, and who hasn't been there? Remind yourself that when you open God's word, he is opening up his heart to you. He is telling you what he is like, how he is holy and powerful and sovereign and wise and kind, and merciful, and caring, and loving, and generous, and gentle. Open this book and see God open his heart to you. That means that all of the commandments, all of the long and never seem to end genealogies, all of the hard to pronounce names, all the cities and countries that you couldn't locate on a map if your life depended on it, all of the repetition, all of the poetry, all of the songs, all of the laws, all of that is God opening his heart to you. It's him making friends with you. Friends with God? I mean, think about that. Isn't that great? What kind of God wants to be friends with people like us who say and do the things that we say and do? What kind of God wants to be friends with idiots? That might be one reason why the word gospel means good news because God wants to be friends with us. I think Jesus even called us his friends, right? John 15, you are my friends. What beautiful words. Jesus says, you, people like you, you are my friends. That's amazing. Well, let's see what our friend has to say to us today, shall we? First Kings chapter 12 beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. 
And they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days and then come again to me. And so the people went away. So let's get our bearings here on the two main characters because they have very similar sounding names. Rehoboam was one of Solomon's sons. He's the successor to the throne. He is now the king of Israel. Here's how I remember it, just so I don't get confused. R for Rehoboam is right next to S for Solomon in the alphabet. So R and S are right next to each other. So that's how I remember Rehoboam goes with Solomon. Jeroboam is the guy who was prophesied by Ahijah the prophet back in chapter 11 that we looked at several weeks ago to be the the king over Israel. He would get 10 tribes. And so if there's confusion, that helps me to remember it. And so when the nation of Israel heard that Jeroboam was back in town because he had fled, because once Solomon heard that Jeroboam was going to be king, Solomon wanted to kill him. So Jeroboam returns and the nation gathers around him and they all go to Shechem to appeal to Rehoboam, King Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And their appeal was that Solomon had been hard on them and they wanted Rehoboam, the new king, to rule with a light fist. Now, a quick word here about their claim that Solomon was harsh. This is their viewpoint, not the author of 1 Kings. We've heard great things about King Solomon so far in our study, up to chapter 11. I think these people already had started this internal revolt in their hearts against uh, David and Solomon and their dynasty since they had heard that Jeroboam was supposed to be the new king. So this was just the crowd's attempt to justify that they were leaning towards Jeroboam and not Rehoboam, the new king. They just simply claimed that Solomon was harsh. So, King Rehoboam sends them away for three days while he thinks the matter over and seeks counsel. Look at verse 6. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But Rehoboam abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, As the king said, come to me again the third day. And King Rehoboam answered the people harshly, forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. 
So King Rehoboam ignores the wisdom of the men who had served alongside his father Solomon, and instead he sides with his buddies. He will rule the nation with an iron fist. And so what are we to make of this? Here is where we should not go with this passage. This is not a text about how young people should heed the advice of wiser, older people. This is not a passage about peer pressure and how teens need the wisdom of their parents. There are passages for that in the Bible, but we shouldn't do that here. This text is not about that. And so what is it about? We'll look at verse 15. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. The focus of this passage is on the providence of God and the word of God. The point of this passage is that God rules his world and he rules the kingdoms of men by his word and with a very meticulous providence. And so the reason Rehoboam got the big head was because, as verse 15 tells us, it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. That's the theology of the text. This text is not about getting bad advice. This text is not about how we should seek out wisdom from older people. This passage is all about God being sovereign over the affairs of this world and his word coming to pass. This passage is in the Bible so that you and I would be reminded that God's word is sure, that his promises are certain. And that they can be trusted. And that you can stake your life on them. This passage is not recorded in God's word so that we would harp on the ignorance and stupidity of youth versus the wisdom of older, wiser people. This passage is in the Bible so that you would leave today confident that this book is true. That God's word can be trusted And it cannot be thwarted. That God rules his world. That what God says is going to happen does happen. This passage is written to tell us who God is. Who Yahweh is. The sovereign Lord. That he is the all-powerful God who controls his world with a very meticulous providence. It's in the Bible to give you hope to comfort your heart because of what's happening in your life that's got you stressed out. To remind you that you can trust every single word in the Bible. And this is exactly what the original audience of 1 Kings needed to hear. Right? They were sitting in exile as slaves in Babylon because they had walked away from the Lord, because they had made some boneheaded, hard-hearted decisions to go after other gods and worship them. They needed to be reminded that God's promise through the prophet Jeremiah to bring them home, back home to Israel after 70 years in captivity, that that would come true. The original audience was being reminded that this is how we enjoy Jesus. 
We bring our failure to him and receive his grace. Every sin of ours, every failure, every stupid decision, every ugly thought, every bit of bitterness that is buried deep within our heart that we have let relax there comfortably, every lust, all of that seems like it would throw our future in doubt, just like the original audience. Our sin seems like it determines our future and it gets the last word in our lives, but that's not true. God's word controls history. God's word controls your history. God's word controls the history of this church. That's what this passage is trying to beat into our heads and into our hearts. And so the end in verse 15 was that Yahweh had in mind during this whole event was that he might fulfill his word which the Lord spoke by Ahijah. The end was that God might fulfill his word that he spoke through Ahijah the prophet back in chapter 11 that Jeroboam would reign over ten tribes of Israel. That's the end. The means of bringing about his word that he spoke through Ahijah the prophet, that Jeroboam would reign over ten tribes of Israel, was, as verse 15 tells us, a turn of affairs. This Hebrew word sometimes is translated as a circumstance or a turn of events. It's telling us that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, his sovereignty orchestrated these events. He's behind it all, but it did not by any means violate King Rehoboam's free decision. Rehoboam wanted to do this. He wanted to rule with an iron fist. Rehoboam wanted to go with the advice of his young friends. Rehoboam's idiotic decision was his. He wanted to rule with an iron fist. And yet, Yahweh's sovereignty actually came through Rehoboam's freedom. The end of this matter was to fulfill his word that Jeroboam would get the ten tribes. The means through which it came was the pride and idiocy of Rehoboam. And so this passage is all about the meticulous providence of God. What is providence? God's providence, which also goes by the name sovereignty. God's providence is the wonderful, strange mysterious, wise, unguessable way that God rules and sustains his world. It's his attention concentrated everywhere. It's his hand intimately involved in every nook and cranny of your life. It's his powerful wisdom at work. And it's very meticulous. Very, very, very meticulous. The late theologian Augustus Hopkins Strong describes God's providence this way. Providence is God's attention concentrated everywhere. Isn't that good? God's attention concentrated everywhere. 
That means that there isn't a nook or cranny in this universe where God's attention is not directed and concentrated upon. There isn't a nook or cranny in our government where God's attention is not directed. There isn't a nook or cranny in your life. There isn't a nook or cranny in your heart where God's attention is not concentrated. And that's comforting. Comforting that God's attention is concentrated on every nook and cranny of my heart? You betcha. It sounds scary, doesn't it? It sounds scary that God knows all those layers and those doors and those dungeons deep down in our heart, those sins and feelings we have towards other people who bother us and what we think about them when we're lying in bed at night and how we could strangle them if we could, but then we go to prison. God knows all of that about you. You think you've got that door locked and no one can see it? You lock the door from the inside and turn around and there's the Holy Spirit. So it kind of seems scary that he knows all this, but it's comforting because he loves us and he wants to change us and transform us and he doesn't want that junk resting comfortably in all of our hearts. He wants to clean it out. There's not a nook or cranny in our heart where the Holy Spirit doesn't have a key. And personally, that helps me take a load off. I don't know about you, but God's providence comforts my heart. Not perfectly, not all the time. But when I meditate on it and think about it, it does. It helps me to relax and not be so uptight. It helps me not to bite my nails and pace the floor and and clench my fists so much. It helps me not to toss in bed so much. It helps me not to worry about what might happen in my life or in the lives of other people. I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded this morning of God's meticulous providence. Providence means that God is not startled by the pride of man. Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, was not caught off guard by King Rehoboam's youthful arrogance. The Lord was not caught off guard by this idiotic decision to rule with an iron fist. Jesus is not caught off guard when politicians go on and on and on about what they are going to do or what they're not going to do or what they tweet. No politician has ever caught Jesus off guard. Jesus is not worried about the future of this country. Jesus isn't caught off guard by any politician, any government, any person for that matter. You have never caught Jesus off guard. Everything that happens in this world happens under the meticulous providence of God. Nothing gets past him. People are not running around doing things apart from God's knowledge. Everything, everyone, every stupid idiotic sinner that inhabits God's world is on the leash of God's sovereignty. Idiots are not running around on the loose with nobody watching them. That truth might help you sleep at night because there are some really ignorant people in this world who do some really ignorant, stupid things. And that helps me sleep a little bit better. And that truth might help you relax and loosen your grip on your life. 
that truth that everything and everyone and every stupid sinner that inhabits God's world is on the leash of God's sovereignty, that truth just might free you. That truth might free you to make some popcorn and binge watch a few episodes of something on Netflix or Hulu. It might relax you. It might actually set you free. It might help you quit biting your nails and pacing the floor. And so was the Lord caught off guard by the arrogance and stupidity of King Rehoboam and his cronies? No. Yahweh used it. Yahweh used the pride and stupidity of Rehoboam to fulfill his word. That means then that the decisions of human beings, whether good or bad or stupid, are under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. Every decision made by every human being is under the authority of a sovereign God and therefore it all adds to his purpose in this world. That should give us hope. Do you feel like the leaders of our nation, the leaders of other nations in this world, do you feel like they're making bad decisions? Guess what? It doesn't catch God off guard. He uses them. Feel like your boss is making boneheaded decisions? You can't stand him or her? Guess what? It doesn't startle God. He uses them for his purpose and his plans, and he will use them for his purpose and plan in your heart. That makes me want to worship a God like that. We serve a God who takes every decision made by every human being and purposes in and through it to accomplish his plan for his glory and the good of his elect people. That truth might keep you sane. That truth might hold you over for a few days or a few years. Believe it. Believe it this morning and rub it into every nook and cranny of your heart. And while you're believing it and rubbing it into every nook and cranny of your heart, look at verse 16. And when all Israel saw that King Rehoboam did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned, reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over Israel. There was none that, that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. So the Israelites hear Rehoboam's idiotic plan to rule harshly, and they decide to break away. And so the nation is now splitting into two, Israel and Judah. Everyone revolted, and King Rehoboam is only left with one tribe, Judah, and the tribe of Benjamin just as Ahijah had prophesied back in chapter 11. But then Rehoboam wants to show them just how serious he is about ruling with an iron fist, and so he sends Adoram, who was the taskmaster over forced labor, to whip these guys into shape. And so Adoram's memo from King Rehoboam simply said, go crack some heads. But what happened when Adoram showed up and tried to crack some heads? 
Verse 18 tells us, all Israel stoned him to death with stones. The brutal stoning of a dorm caused Rehoboam then to hightail it back to Jerusalem. No way he's sticking around to be killed. And so King Rehoboam finally does something smart. He gets out of Dodge before they kill him. And by now, emails have been forwarded like crazy that Jeroboam is back in town and the nation of Israel then calls on Jeroboam to be their king, which again was the fulfillment of Yahweh's word through Ahijah the prophet back in chapter 11. And the author then tells us in verse 20, there was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. That means that King Rehoboam only has the allegiance of one tribe. Everybody else went to serve Jeroboam. Actually, there's two tribes Judah and Benjamin, but since Jerusalem is located in Benjamin, it's a given that the city, the tribe where the king lives, is going to follow him. So ten go with Jeroboam, and you have two, Judah and Benjamin, who stay with Rehoboam. Now, you may have noticed in verses 16 through 20, there is four references to David. The background of this is the Davidic covenant that we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promised David he would always have a son on the throne. And so Rehoboam's foolish wisdom and actions, even though the nation is split now, still prove that nothing can thwart Yahweh's promise to David that he would have a man on the throne. And Rehoboam's actions can't prevent the coming of a greater David, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So the idiot Rehoboam cannot dissolve God's plans. Rehoboam cannot dissolve God's promises in his word, but Rehoboam sure can make things messy, can't he? Because now the nation is split in two. Rehoboam can make some boneheaded decisions and send Adoram off to crack some heads only to wind up dead, and Rehoboam can be an idiot and choose to listen to all his friends and to try to rule with an iron fist, but even this cannot thwart God's plan. This is good news, y'all. Our sin cannot thwart the plans of God. And so how in the world do you enjoy Jesus when you totally mess up your life like Rehoboam? How in the world do you enjoy Jesus when you've been a complete idiot like Rehoboam? Here's the answer. This is how we enjoy Jesus. We bring our failure to him and receive his grace. His mercy always meets us at the place of our messiness, at the places of our failures, where we've failed as a spouse, where we've failed as parents, where we've failed as children, where we've failed as church members. His mercy shows up, and it doesn't give us what we deserve. I love that about Jesus. He doesn't give us what we deserve. His mercy and his grace always trump our sin. Always. God's mercy always has the last word in our lives. Our sin and rebellion, our mess, the yuckiness that's in our hearts, the ugly situations that we create in our lives because of the sin that's in our hearts, And all of the ugly situations that we find ourselves in because of other people's sins and the yuckiness in their hearts, that ugliness, that yuckiness, that messiness does not have the final word over our lives. Mercy does. Grace does. Mercy always trumps sin. 
Mercy always meets us in our mess. That should give us hope. Well, sure, we can certainly make things messy and we can tarnish God's plans, but we can't keep His will from being done. I mean, it's true. We will make some terrible decisions in life. We may make some super sin-soaked, selfish, boneheaded decisions that will wreak havoc in our lives and in the lives of people that we love, and we'll have to live with the consequences. I mean, you have to live with the consequences. We've seen that since Solomon's fall. God's grace is not a magic wand that just removes all your consequences. We have to live with the consequences. But our hope is that these things don't destroy God's ultimate plan. He uses them for his purposes and for his glory. He even uses them for our good. So sure, we may act and behave in a way that dishonors the Lord. We may act like idiots. But in the end, he can turn things around and use them for his glory. So what do we do when we have made some terrible decisions or someone else has and we're left with the consequences? What do we do when we're kind of just stuck in the middle of the consequences of our decisions or someone else's? Well, 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 21 to 24 can help us. Look at verse 21. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. So Rehoboam is on track to be idiot of the year. When he got back to Jerusalem with his tail between the legs, after a dorm was stoned to death, What does Rehoboam do? He rallied his troops to wage war against those in Israel who had defected and gone over to Team Jeroboam. He rounded up 180,000 warriors to go fight. But as Rehoboam is ready to go to war, he encountered a force far more superior to his 180,000 skilled warriors. Rehoboam came face to face with the word of God. Here's what happened. Shemaiah, the prophet who represented the word of God. Shemaiah received a message from Yahweh, and Yahweh basically told Shemaiah to go tell Rehoboam this. Don't fight against your brothers. Go home. I'm behind all this. You can't derail my plan, so go home, son. And the reason is given in verse 24 for the drama that has occurred. For this thing is from me. In Hebrew, the emphasis falls this way, for from me, this thing has happened. Again, we see the stress on God's providence over the affairs of mankind. Yahweh was behind all this. And to our surprise, at this point in the narrative, Rehoboam and the 180,000 warriors listened to the word of God. Finally, King Rehoboam has done something 
wise. Rehoboam listens to the word of God. Now, later on in a couple chapters, we'll find out that he began building high places to worship other gods. But at this point in his life, he has listened to God's word. And while we've stressed God's providence throughout this section, let's not miss his grace here. Yahweh initiates and sends word to Rehoboam. Don't go to war. What a gracious God we serve. He's always intervening in the lives of his people to draw them back. And I think he's speaking to people this morning too. He's intervening in your life this morning to say, hey, don't go down that path. Don't resist whatever's happening in your life because I'm working in and through it. What a gracious God we serve. I want to worship a God like that who kicks down the locked and bolted doors of my heart and says, I'm here to transform and clean up. I love that Jesus is always chasing his people down when they turn away from him. And so Rehoboam and company yield to the word of God. They humble themselves under God's word. No more being idiots. But what do you and I do when we've made some boneheaded decisions like Rehoboam? You do what Rehoboam does here. You listen to the word of God. You give up your wisdom. You give up trying to do things your way, your thinking. I'm going to do this in situation to move here and do this and that. You give that up. You forsake that because you know in your heart of hearts that that's wrong anyway. You give up your wisdom, your way of doing things, your plans. And you humble yourself under the very clear word of God. And then you find yourself walking in freedom freedom and getting some traction in your life. I mean, who hasn't been a Rehoboam at some point in their life? Who hasn't been a Rehoboam this week? Who hasn't been an idiot and said and done something stupid that brought consequences into their life? And so what do you do when you say or do idiotic things like Rehoboam? You go back to God's word. The only thing that you can trust. You can't trust your wisdom. You can't trust your heart. Some of you are trusting your heart right now. You can't trust your heart. Jeremiah said it's wicked. You can trust a wicked heart or you can trust God's word. You go back to God's word. You heed God's word. You take your idiotic self and you put it under the wisdom of God, the Bible. This is how we enjoy Jesus. We bring our failure to him, and we receive his grace. And isn't the word of God the place where we will find his grace? Isn't the word of God where we will find Jesus, our Savior and Redeemer? The story of redemption throughout the whole Bible is that God always meets our mess with his mercy. He always meets our failures with his forgiveness. He always meets our guilt with his grace. He always meets our sin with his salvation. This is how God has always dealt with sinners. So let me ask you, when you open up your Bible, what are you expecting? Here's the answer you should be expecting to meet a person, to meet Jesus, your friend, in his word. You should come to this Bible and open it up and say, God's going to open up his heart to me. See, God wants us 
to know him, and that's why he has given us his word. He has taken the initiative by speaking to us and by telling us what he is like and how his world works. He has spoken in order to tell us things about him that we could not know any other way. He wants us to know him truly as he really is, not as we think he might be. If we open our Bibles to meet God, we will find that we see him most clearly through Jesus. The picture we get of God goes from black and white to high definition TV when we see it fleshed out in the life and death of our Savior. We see his heart being open to us in high def. So where do you need to take God at his word today? Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. I don't believe that. I don't believe what you say about Jesus or the Bible. You're an unbeliever. Listen, hell is real. That A plain reading of the Bible, you will come to the conclusion that Jesus' is hell is a very real place for sinners who are so stubborn and so rebellious they will not bend their knee to him. And I don't want that for any of you. Humble yourself under God's word today if you don't know Jesus and say, Jesus, forgive me. I believe, have mercy on me, a sinner. Would you turn from your sin and would you trust in Jesus? But if you are a Christian, you are a believer, you are one of God's children, where do you personally need to take God at his word? Where do you in your life need to humble yourself under his wisdom and forsake your ideas? Where do you need to be saved from your own wisdom? How you think. Jesus wants to save you from that today. Imagine what new work of the Holy Spirit would happen here at Grace if we simply brought our failures to Jesus and received his grace with the empty hands of faith. I think we'd actually begin to enjoy Jesus. Imagine that. Imagine enjoying the God who lived and died for us, lived and died to take away our sins. Imagine that. Imagine what new work of the Holy Spirit would happen here at Grace if we started confessing our sins and started taking Jesus at his word. How might God change our families if we started taking him at his word? It's what your word says, I'm just going to believe it and do it. How might our marriages change? How might our relationships, how might our church, how might our city change if we started confessing our sins and if we started taking Jesus at his word? I think God is saying to us today, try me, try me. Start confessing your sins. Start taking me at my word. Start believing my promises. Give up your own ideas. Forsake your so-called wisdom. Let me unearth those buried sins that are resting comfortably in the deep recesses of your heart and watch how my spirit will usher in a new season of joy and mission. And now the question is, who wants in? Who wants in on that? Who wants in on that? Amen. Amen. Who wants to see the Holy Spirit usher in a new season of joy and mission here at Grace? Who wants to see the Holy Spirit usher in a new season of joy and mission in their life? 
And so now the question is, who wants in? Let's pray. Let's confess our sin. Let's repent. Let's forsake our wisdom. Let's bring our failure to Jesus and receive his grace so that we can enjoy him anew. Heavenly Father, we admit, as hard as it is, that we are ignorant and we are idiots who think we know what's best. We think we know what's best for our life and that's just simply not true. You are our creator. You know what is best for us and you've made much of that abundantly clear in your word. And we just want to take you at your word and say, okay, I believe. I'll do what you say. We want to believe your word that Jesus lived and died for our sins. We can't earn your love. We just simply receive it. And we want to receive your forgiveness of sins so we confess our sins. We repent, God. Work in our hearts. Keep changing us. Let us not be comfortable with those sins that are just relaxing in our hearts, but may we go to war by the power of the Spirit and by the power of the gospel. And Lord, change us. Change us, God, so that as a church, Lord, we can begin walking in a new season of freedom and joy. We ask this for your glory and for our joy in you so that we would enjoy you. In Jesus' name, amen.